Oh, hey, Rebels. It's me, potentially your favorite rebel, Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're listening to a free audio-only recording of my weekly Wednesday night show, The Gun Show. However, this is the internet, so the beauty of that is convenience. You can listen or watch whenever you feel like. Now, tonight my guest is Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science, and we are talking about the looming carbon tax hike. Did you know that you're getting a hike in your carbon tax on April 1st? If gas wasn't already expensive enough for you. But we're also talking about how Russia has funded the green energy movement and opposition to pipelines and fracking in the United States. And some of that money potentially ended up in Canada blocking our pipelines. And now all of a sudden we don't have the ability to offset Russian oil that's flowing into the United States because Keystone XL is blocked. Isn't that funny how that happened? Anyway, if you like listening to the show, then I promise you're going to love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long form TV style shows here on Rebel News. And there's a bunch of stuff sitting behind that paywall, way more than when I first started. So you get access to Ezra's nightly, fully produced Ezra Levant show, David Menzies' fun Friday night show, Rebel Roundup, this show, my show, The Gun Show. But you also get access to Andrew Chapados's show, Andrew Says, and Kat and Nat and their show for millennial women and the people who love them called Misunderstood. Now... All you have to do to become a subscriber is go to rebelnewsplus.com and sign up. It's only eight bucks a month. I don't think you'll regret it. And just for our podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new Rebel News Plus membership by using the coupon code podcast when you subscribe. That's rebelnewsplus.com and the coupon code is really easy. It's podcast. And if you like the show, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm relatively confident that you do and or will. Would you do me a favor and leave a five-star review wherever you find us? It's a great way to support the show without having to spend a dime, but it also puts us higher in the podcast algorithms. Um, so that helps other people find the podcast too. And it gives us bragging rights over the CBC with their 1.6 billion dollars annually. I think we're approaching that. And uh, it would just be nice for us to be able to beat them on our shoestring budget based on your reviews alone. And now that I've got all that spite out of my system, please enjoy this free audio only version of my show. Carbon taxes, inflation, debt, and the useful idiots of the green energy movement. All that and more, I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show. The left in North America cannot shut up about Russian meddling. In fact, they spent four years accusing President Donald Trump of being a foreign agent, apropos of, well, no evidence whatsoever. But what if they, the green left, were the real foreign agents of Russian oligarchs? Do you think they would even care? Do you think that 
they would pick up their check from the environmentalist charity clearinghouse to go on a demarketing campaign to block Canadian pipelines if they knew the name on that check was Vladimir Putin? Or do the ends justify the means? Would they be perfectly happy to do business with people they see as human rights abusers as long as they achieve their end goals of decarbonization in the Western world? Frankly, when I see how little the environmentalist left cares about inflation, the cost of gas and heat or eat poverty for the average North American family, I think it's the latter. I don't think they would care that they are the useful idiots in the cog of dictators hell-bent on world domination. We really need to look no further than how the environmentalist left treats China's carbon emissions versus the emissions in the Western world. So I guess why would Vladimir Putin be any different? Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's becoming increasingly common knowledge that Russia and or Russian oligarchs have been funding environmentalist charities in the United States, which then greenwash the money to smaller organizations to block North American pipelines and North American natural gas development. This secured Gazprom, the Russian natural gas company's stranglehold on Western Europe and Germany in particular. I really don't think that the environmentalist left cares that they were, in fact, textbook useful idiots here. I mean, who needs oil? They ride the bus. So to discuss how dark green money leads back to Russia and the looming carbon tax hike that is set to send your utility, electricity, and gas bills through the roof and so much more is my friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science in an interview we recorded yesterday morning. now from her climate cabin is my friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science and there are a lot of things to talk about including the Liberals suddenly waking up to the potential of foreign funding meddling in Canadian politics they just seem to have got the culprits all wrong once again Um, but before we get to that let's talk about I think the thing that's on the top of everybody's mind that it it truly affects all of us that's the cost of living and inflation and yet yet The Liberals are hiking the carbon tax up to $40 a ton here in just three weeks from now. And it seems to me there's really only one politician doing something quite tangible about that here in Alberta. And I'm frequently a critic of Jason Kenney, but he has decided to stop the provincial portion, at least of some of the taxes collected on uh, the price per liter, um, because that's really the one thing that that governments can do is They're taxing us. They're responsible for the tax. They can't change the market, um, but they can take change the portion that they're taking. And yet we hear all the time liberals talking about, you know, the the cost of fuel and how it's so outrageous. And Rachel Notley in Alberta talking about the cost of fuel and how the government has to do something. She brought in a carbon tax. It's it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. She brought in a carbon tax and also she brought in the renewables policy, which is driving up costs astronomically across Alberta. And we warned people about that back in 2015. Um, But, um, you know, nobody wanted to listen. They wanted to call us deniers or whatever. And um, there you have it. Um, I think uh, one thing that's very important is that I just found out the other day from this paper, out of uh, Switzerland and Canada is that Canada and Switzerland are the only two countries in the world that have this carbon tax and dividend or rebate program. 
And this uh, particular study looked at how the stupid peons don't uh, realize that they're getting so much money back and they don't appreciate it. I mean, really, it's tax them and bribe them with your own money. But, um, you know, what happened in Switzerland is that they actually uh, voted against an increase in the carbon tax and uh, they only get a discount on their health care costs. And in Canada, I asked Robert Lyman about this paper and he said, really, there's so many layers of GHG reduction taxes, incentives, uh, subsidies, etc., you know, the carbon tax makes up only a tiny portion of this huge burden of green debt that we're carting around on our backs that does nothing for the climate and nothing for the environment in most cases. Yeah, and you have a really great video actually on the Friends of Science YouTube page, which is phenomenal. You guys take these big, huge issues and break them down into tiny bits that normal people can digest in language normal people understand, because I think some of the things that the environmentalists do is they try to sound a lot smarter than they are, and they sort of obfuscate the real issues with big words and jargon. Um, But the fact that the media refuses to make the connection between green energy policies and carbon taxes with the cost of living, they refuse to acknowledge that the carbon tax is built in along the entire supply chain and compounded over and over again, so that when you get your jug of milk in the grocery store and you say, this is 25% more expensive than it was just a few short months ago, the media never acknowledges that in any of their reporting. Yeah, we've got a short video on that, where which I call carbon taxophobia, you know, because the media is suffering from this phobia of they can't mention the carbon tax for some reason. And, um, you know, people are always told, well, it's just, you know, a few pennies per liter at the pump. But, you know, that few pennies per liter is at the pump. It's also um, at the farmer's uh, Um, farm where he has to, he or she has to, you know, uh, plant and harvest all this equipment, uh, all this food for us, has to ship it, it has to be processed, it has to be packaged all the way along the line. These carbon taxes are cumulative. And uh, that's really what ends up really crushing you. And when you get a carbon tax rebate, you don't get the full rebate and not everybody gets it. And by that time, you've already spent more than whatever your rebate is. You never catch up with it. So it's absurd. And speaking of foreign interference, James Hansen, the US climate scientist, some months back, was pushing Canadians to sign a petition for a $210 carbon tax, which he proposed would then be rebated to everyone at the first of the month on their debit card, which sounds to me a lot like UBI. And I'm wondering why this foreign interference from James Hansen his specialty is supposed to be climate, not carbon taxes. It sounds more like a pyramid scheme. Just like, you know, you get those scammer emails saying, oh, just send me this money (laughs) and um, I'll send you back $50,000 as soon as the, you know, Nigerian government unfreezes my bank account. That's (laughs) outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, um, you also did a very horrific reading of the state of financial affairs of the Canadian economy and, you know, just the sheer impact, the COVID lockdown. And I think government's reactions had on the Canadian economy. And yet the solution seems so simple. We have 
as you point out, over, I think it's trillions of dollars in wealth locked in Alberta. But $21 trillion U.S. $21 trillion U.S. So that's, you know, $30 trillion in Canadian pesos. And yet the federal government doesn't even consider that when looking at the fiscal catastrophe that they're facing. I, mm-hmm. Because I don't think they think it's a fiscal catastrophe. I think they think it's an opportunity, as they say. Well, I think they're into the modern monetary theory, which I don't know a lot about, but I think the fundamental principle of it is just print more money because then and we'll call it fair. But yeah, going back to that monumental debt, I just pulled it up here. I'll just read a couple of things here. The federal government budget budgetary deficit rose from 5.6 billion in 2018 to 2019 to 312.4 billion in 2020 to 2021, which is an increase of 5,479%. Yeah, you know, the, and in this, um, in this video, we also give people some examples of how much money that is in, in terms, say, if we used units of time, like seconds. So, you know, we're ending up with, thousands of years of seconds of debt, you know, to try and make it more tangible for people. So have a look at the video, have a look at the um, blog post as well. Robert Lyman put it together. Yeah, it's, it's really quite frightening when you see just yeah. how it, the, the debt just exploded. And there are three options here, cut spending, raise taxes, unlock Alberta's wealth. And I think the option the liberals will go with is raise taxes. I mean, they are. Yeah. And it's absurd because people don't have that extra money to pay. You need, you need that export revenue coming in from sales abroad and uh, you know, even just uh, um, getting one or two of the former pipelines going would really stimulate the economy. I think it was uh, Don Thompson, who was the former CEO of the oil sands uh, uh, developers group who said that during the 2008 recession, uh, there was something like $30 billion rolling through the economy from the oil sands and about half a million jobs. So, uh, you know, we should learn from that and use that because we have the resources and there's huge demand for it. We've got two or three reports on on our website that Robert Lyman did showing that the forecast for oil and gas worldwide is up, up, up. There And we see that now also when we see the prices are skyrocketing, partly because of lack of supply, partly because of people like Mark Carney, who said that uh, companies will have to justify their business and they'll go bankrupt if they don't, you know, deal with uh, climate crisis in their development. So a lot of investors pulled out of oil and gas companies because of that. A lot of insurance companies because of ENGO advocacy and because of Carney's comments have also pulled out of financing or supporting, insuring um, oil and gas development. So what that's done is it's parked these projects that take 20 to 30 years to develop to fruition and investor money has pulled out. Now it's gonna take at least a decade if if there is a, a government that investors deem to be stable to get that money flowing back in and get things rolling again. Um, you know, but we're short, like, I think in two years, we lost $100 billion in investment in Canada because of these crazy climate policies and carbon taxes. So, and a lot of it comes from 
foreign pressure. This is something you've been talking about for at least a decade. Foreign pressure, this demarketing campaign that's coming out of San Francisco, and we'll get to the the funding related to that in a second. But um, it's interesting to see um, with recent events, the liberals all of a sudden becoming concerned about foreign funded activism here in Canada because some Americans might have donated to the truckers convoy. But this has been this has been a billions and billions of dollars right out of the center of the Canadian economy based on a foreign funded demarketing campaign. Mm -hmm. And the liberals are worried about somebody who gave $20 to a trucker. Yeah, actually, we have on our website the uh, Deloitte report. Yeah. And um, uh, Robert Lyman did a summary of it. And he it's called Has No One Read the Deloitte Report? He did this before the convoy. But I'll just read this one little thing here. Um, 31 ENGOs, that's environmental groups, accumulated over 2.5 billion in assets received 897.5 million in foreign funding and received 2.1 billion government funding. So your own tax dollars are funding these people to shut down your jobs. Like that's insane. That's gotta stop. But I mean, 897.5 million um, in foreign funding is certainly not, uh, you know, some uh, happy American sending a hundred bucks to the truckers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the numbers in this report from Robert Lyman, they are staggering. Just the enormity. There's no possible way that the best funded marketing campaign coming out of the oil sand sector, coming out of oil and gas could have even remotely competed with this and it is on all fronts it's not just on environmental activism it's on environmental lawfare it's on lobbying governments to change policies it's on crazy things like tree planting and pushing the carbon credits exchange program it's it was just a multifaceted attack like you say insurance uh, attacking the funding, going after the banks, spamming the banks with these campaigns, uh, funding um, Indigenous opposition to pipelines, which is completely different from the Indigenous uh, promotion of pipelines, like what we see in northern BC, where it, you know it's it's something with the coastal gas link. It's actually something that the local Indigenous bands want, um, mm-hmm. but you have outside activists coming in to block it and sort of astroturfing themselves. The amount of money, uh, like even just I'll just quote this: environmental law organizations, as a separate group, accumulated almost eleven million in assets, had foreign funding of twenty one point five billion dollars, and received. million in government funding. And this was to launch lawfare attacks at Canadian oil and gas development. Mm -hmm. And against the federal government. So, you know, the federal government is funding these groups. Then these groups are suing the federal government. Your tax dollars are paying for the lawyers defending the federal government. And then usually if they lose, they go back and appeal, you know, because they have nothing to lose. So, you know, and they can appeal on every single kind of ground. Same with, uh, you know, these um, child lawsuits that are coming up. Yeah. 
you know, and again, they're funded uh, by uh, or they're they're advanced by people who are already activists who really are just using their children as human shields, you know, which uh, is frowned upon in every other regard. I mean, actually, with the convoy, people were saying, who brought their kids to Parliament Hill? Well, you know, it is a public space. Parents. Parents (laughs) parents did, actually. And, and, uh, you know, and they got to jump in a bouncy castle. But, um, you know, these uh, children who are being used as human shields to fight oil and gas projects, no one says a word about that. Or, for instance, when uh, tech resources... Uh, was about to, I think it was approved, and then the company had to make a decision as to whether or not they'd go ahead. That very weekend, CBC uh, promoted um, a hunger strike that 10-year-old kids were going to go on if tech resources went ahead. Now, you know, if I was a CEO (laughs) at, at some oil and gas company, I'd go, okay, let's just move to the Bahamas or wherever, like, you know, if the, yeah. if the CBC is going to promote hunger strikes for for little kids and no one's going to speak up about it and say this is bad and wrong and sorry, kids, you got to go back to class. Um, you know, that's disgusting use of exploitation of children. Well, and we need to look no further than little Greta Thunberg to see yeah. how children are manipulated and used uh, to block grown-up jobs, grown-up people's jobs. And it's funny because now we have, and this is a good, kind of a good segue into the next thing I want to talk to you about. We have a real existential crisis uh, unfolding between Russia and Ukraine. And the Russian war machine has been fed by the environmentalist movement and their their actions to block North American energy independence. Um, it has uh, enabled gra- Gazprom's stranglehold, particularly on Germany, with the amount of natural gas that Germany is buying from Russia. That m- money just flows right into Russia. They build their war machine, and now they're using it against Ukraine. Um, but Russia has really played a long game with this. And I, I see Friends of Science has a great blog post about have environmentalists being financed by Russia. This is something that's been on the Americans' radar for about eight years. Um, mm-hmm. but And a lot of it ends up, um, I, I had seen an article, and I'll see if I can dig it up as you're talking, but the Sea Change Foundation in San Francisco, which works very closely with Tides, they were receiving money from a holding company that was based offshore. I think it's Klein. And the Russians were dumping money into that holding company. And then that money was coming out the other side into San Francisco-based environmentalist organizations like Sea Change and Tides. And we know that some of that foreign money ended up in Canada. And it was particularly particularly designed in this case to block fracking and fund the anti-fracking movement because that secured Gazprom's market share if Americans were not exporting liquefied natural gas. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, it's easy also to sort of point the finger and say, oh, look, Russia's the bad guy because he did all this funding. Well, you know, how stupid are Westerners? Honest to God. I mean, sure. This is our 20th year of operation. We've been issuing reports and documents on energy issues and climate science 
for the past 20 years. And first of all, the media doesn't pick it up, partly yeah. because, as we discussed prior, they are also uh, deeply engrossed and in, in, uh, engaged with these environmental groups. And partly, and now they're also funded by the government. And, um, and um, you also find that, that no one in government has raised a question and said, well, can we really go net zero? Because, you know, it looks to me like about 80% of our country runs on fossil fuels. Do you think we can do this in just a decade or less? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why isn't anybody asking this question? We have laid it out time and again, and people don't want to hear it. Uh, so either they're being paid to, to toe the party line and go along with uh, Russian propaganda, or they're useful idiots. But, <clears throat> but the point is that, you know, we are all now in, in Europe facing a huge crisis. If, if Russia gets pushed to the wall, they can simply turn off the gas. Yep. I, I don't think they'll do that because they don't want to kill millions of people. And they need the money. They need the money <laughs> and they actually just want to have a business deal. That's what Nord Stream 2 was all about. Um, but, um, you know, but the West has tinkered and dabbled in the Ukraine. And, and sadly, tragically, those are the people who are the pawns now bearing the brunt of this when um, that didn't have to happen. And we have quite a few articles on our blog by uh, Samuel Fafari, who's a chemical engineer. He was a an official with the EU for 36 years, and he's a geopolitical energy expert. So read those and see that point of view from Belgium and understand how these geopolitical energy issues are vital to the survival of any nation, and especially Canada. You know, it's very cold here, maybe you've noticed. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I, I'm sorry, I'm just reading through this as you're talking there, this Washington Examiner article, which is just great, because it links back to all the times, the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology, as well as um, another House Committee, um, tracked the Russian interference in the fracking industry. Um, and they said, there's a paperless money trail that flows from Russian President Vladimir Putin's government into a shell company in Bermuda, and from there into the Sea Change Foundation. And they go on to say that a lot of the money ended up targeted at Marcellus and Utica shale gas resources. So if you're a Russian oligarch looking to suppress America's natural gas revolution, and the same thing happened to us here in Canada because the money came out the other side from mm -hmm. sea change and tides and then also ended up in Canada, Pennsylvania is a place where you'd want to concentrate those resources. But the same demarketing campaign was targeted at us. And mm -hmm. so when we hear about uh, you know Russian meddling um, as we did through the entire time of President Donald Trump's presidency, it wasn't what they were telling us. It was something that happened far sooner, and it furthered the Democrat agenda of the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. and, and ironically and sadly, of course, all of these ENGOs have been subsidized, tax subsidized by yeah. you. And people who have wanted to save the, you know, burrowing owl or whatever little creature they came up with, uh, beluga whale or the right whales, you know, they donated 20, 30, 50, 100, $1,000. Maybe they donated their land as yeah. part of their estate, you know, believing that they were saving the planet 
when they were just being conned. Like, what a tragedy, what a humiliation. And now, look, we're in really deep doo-doo because of this. Now, I wanted to uh, touch on something that you wrote the other day in the Western Standard, and I'm really proud of the Western Standard for uh, publishing your article. They are uh, early adopters of good ideas over there. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about your article in the Western Standard? Uh, Well, I I felt strongly that um, uh, some of the rhetoric going around was, um, you know, really um, improper, like uh, Dave Makachuk is beating the drum to go to war. And so I wanted to try and get people to think a bit more about the fact that we will never be on the front line of war. You know, we're we're all safe and happy here. I I mean, unless Russia decides to invade um, the Arctic, which they could, they have uh, tons of, um, uh, they have like, I think eight bases in the Arctic. They planted a flag on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. They have the world's biggest uh, uh, icebreakers, the world's biggest submarine, and they have hypersonic missiles. So, you know, people should not be beating the drum and, and trying to make things worse. And I think people should also look at John Mearsheimer's uh, lecture from 2015. And he was talking about how the problems in the Ukraine between the Ukraine and Russia are actually the fault of the West. And again, because the West keeps dangling NATO promises in front of the Ukraine and saying, well, you know, we think you should join one day. And so the Ukraine thinks that's great. You know, if anything happens, the West will back us. NATO will be there for us. Meantime, the West knows that if they incorporate um, uh, the Ukraine into NATO, that would be a declaration of war as far as Russia is concerned. And Russia has said that since the 1990s when uh, the wall came down and the Soviet Union broke up. they, um, They were promised by successive officials in the West that, no, no, NATO will never move an inch toward you, never move an inch eastward. Well, it's been galloping eastward. And, you know, this was sort of the last straw, I guess. So I just think that people should um, calm down, look a bit more carefully at both sides of the story here. I, I decry the invasion. I'm terribly sad for the Ukrainian people. But I, I will also say that um, in uh, 1984, I was in uh, Russia to try and get a documentary going on Vladislav Tretyak. And uh, the people I met there were wonderful people, fabulous people. And uh, they reminded me very much of my farm family here in Alberta. You know, people, salt of the earth, grounded people, uh, very family oriented um, very generous to me. And it, it was also clear to me that Russia was still in a post-war recovery period, you know, because after World War II, um, the U.S. and the West rushed into Germany and Japan to rebuild those countries. They didn't do that, of course, with Russia because there was a standoff by that time. But uh, that means that they spent, you know, the past uh, number of decades struggling to regain footing. And one of the things I found when I was researching for the documentary is that 24 million Russians died in World War II. That was the entire population of Canada at the time I was working on that documentary. So think of what a tremendous blow that is to any nation. 
So uh, I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, let's, let's try and have a broader view of history and try and find some peaceful resolution. And one of the things that Professor Samuel Fafari had proposed prior to the conflict was that an, a good energy deal with the EU and Russia could, you know, perhaps end the conflict, make a deal, serve both sides, and, um, and it's something that's eminently doable. Uh, of course, Nord Stream 2 has been cancelled now, but, um, you know, it may be a road back. But I, I think we don't want to pull the whole world into the war because, you know, Ukraine and Russia are big suppliers of wheat for the rest of the world. And thousands of people, millions of people will be facing famine because of this conflict. So we should try and resolve it as best we can, I think. Yeah, it's so strange to see the rhetoric online. I'm (laughs) anti-invasion. I'm pro-Ukrainian sovereignty, but I'm also pro-Russian people. And when I see that the Russian government is going to attempt to occupy a country of 40 million people who would rather take up arms and die than be Russian again, they're entering a forever war where generations of young Russian men are going to be sent home in body bags to their moms because you're dealing with people who, like I said, will die, will participate in an insurgency rather than be Russian again. And that's on the Russian government. And I have nothing but compassion for those Russian mothers who, you know, know that this is what's going to happen to their sons if this continues down this road Mm -hmm. and that's i think the grim reality of war and why you know we in canada shouldn't be so quick to uh uh, push the hot rhetoric um because unless something unusual happens it won't be our sons coming home in body bags uh and it's a terrible thing yeah you know and it, it it's going back to just the reliance on Russian gas there. Are, it's again, like the carbon taxophobia that you talk about with the mainstream media and they just can't talk about it. The environmentalists can't talk about how their green energy policies have pushed Germany into the arms of Vladimir Putin. They've That's said, right. you've got to get off coal and you've got to get off nuclear, but Germans still need to heat their homes and power their homes. And so the the environmentalist movement left them with no choice but to cozy up to Putin and buy, I think it's 40% of Gazprom gas goes directly to Germany. And that's the green movement that destabilized the world. Energy Mm -hmm. independence is the way forward for peace and security. And even now we've got Joe Biden running around to all the oligarchs and horrible people of the world, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, a government the Americans don't even recognize as legitimate and saying, give us your oil and gas. We need more of your oil and gas. And we're up here in Canada saying, hello, we have a pipeline that has like this much left to build. Could we just finish it? We'd love to help you out. But they can't backtrack from those green policies. They're just stuck. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, we did a report called Protests versus Green Trade War. And you can see if you, and this is the 
Tarzan's campaign in their own words. And you can see that the Democrats have used this uh, Keystone XL as a wedge issue. Uh, and that, um, you know, the, the dirtiness of the oil sands, you know, the, the vast expanse of land being um, excavated, which is actually the same size as the city of Toronto, but they're excavating it in a few years rather than three or 400. So, you know, yeah. it's all going to be reclaimed. Uh, but that dirty image has been a really big seller for wind and solar. Because then you say, oh, but look, this is clean. See, that's dirty. This is clean. So uh, it's really been a very advanced marketing tool. And I think if people look at it that way, it makes a lot more sense. Um, what else did I want to mention to you? Oh, yeah, I, I think also, you know, we did a couple of reports. One's a climate risk report where the Canadian securities uh, administrators were trying to decide whether or not climate risk reporting should be incorporated into securities um, governance and legislation. And we told them that really it's just greenwashing. And actually, sure. since the world is now at war, like, shouldn't we be paying more attention to practical issues like energy independence and uh, financial security for the investments in energy. So we hadn't gotten a response from them, but that's also on our blog if people want to have a look. I don't know if you saw John Kerry musing about how going to war is going to uh, force people to take their eye off the prize of climate change. And then he was worried about the carbon emissions related to war. And I'm like, I think they're leveling cities like the The Russians have a habit of what they call depopulating cities. They first they shell and then they just it's indiscriminate. And John Kerry is worried about the carbon emissions. I mean, these people are just insane. It's anti-human. It, it I know I didn't need confirmation, but that was it. I'm like, you said the quiet part out loud, John Kerry. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah, well, it, you know, it is uh, anti-human and, and uh, Samuel Fafari has a piece on our blog also about the assault on Western values. And, and interestingly enough, <clears throat> you know, if you look at the World Economic Forum, they are supporting the Ukraine. And you'd think them being in Switzerland, they might want to prefer to take a more neutral role. But not only are they um, supporting the Ukraine, they also... Uh, are the people who've been pushing for a global price on carbon by 2030. Now, uh, we also have on our blog the Kyoto Protocol PowerPoint that uh, Russia presented, or one of the Russian advisors presented in 2004. This came to us a few years ago via the Clintel network. And it's very interesting because the Russians see the climate change uh, movement as the threat to human civilization. And they lay it out in very stark terms. They were so just they smart enough to fund it in the other parts of the world. <laughs> That's right. Well, they saw how stupidly sheepish people could be about it. So yeah. why not do it? And I mean, honestly, why, you know, we have thousands of great engineers in the West. Uh, why did governments not appeal to them and say, is this doable? You know, is net zero by 2030 doable? Because it's not. By 2050? No, it's not. Okay, well, show us what we should do, you know, and we have a, a couple of reports on that. We have net zero, the holy grail. And we also have the cost of US decarbonization, which turns out to be something like 20 times the US GDP. 
<laughs> so, you know, these are impossible notions that the Greens have been pushing on society. And politicians have been buying into them probably <clears throat> because all these ENGOs are so rich and powerful and there has been that flow of offshore money. You know, who knows if it directly entered the pockets of certain people. We don't know, but we do know that the social influence of it has been massive. So they want to get votes. So everybody goes climate change, climate change. But that just enhances and increases the um, the demand for more climate change policies. And actually, Robert Lyman said it when he spoke uh, to us in 2017, I think it was, he said that successive governments have made promises that they couldn't keep and they didn't keep. And yet the environmentalists for the next government have used them like a two by four, you know, to beat the politicians around the head. And you see that as the, um, the climate policies get ever more restrictive. But you know, one thing that I wanted to mention with regard to the convoy and the Emergencies Act, I don't know if people are aware, but in September of 2021, in the journal Metro out of Quebec, there was a proposal that the War Measures Act should be instituted to fight the climate emergency. And then a personal carbon ration could be put on your vax board. Your freedom of movement could be limited. And all of the things that we saw roll out in the emergencies declaration for the convoy were proposed in that op-ed in journal Metro in the fall of 2021. Um, and I think, you know, this is why we have to be very careful about uh, things going forward, because obviously they're keen to use this act again. And uh, perhaps they thought that the um, convoy was a more viable um, risk to the public, you know, because all those people were actually walking around with gasoline. <laughs> there was gasoline in Ottawa. Because <laughs> oh, no. everyone there rides a bike or, you know, or walks or skates. <laughs> so, um, they probably saw that as more of a threat. And also Mark Carney, again, an unelected, unaccountable person, wrote a very influential op-ed in the Globe and Mail calling it sedition. And <laughs> people were actually just there, you know, making a public protest and having a beer and, and having fun in their bouncy castle with a burger. Uh, so, you know, and Mark Carney is the UN climate czar, right? Yeah. So, you know, very influential guy. Yeah, it's funny how um, I think we were being primed for the normalization of invoking the Emergencies Act. They can invoke it over honking and bouncy castles, then surely, surely it will be no problem to uh, invoke it over the impending doomsday of climate change, according to them. I don't think that that's the case. And it's funny, you mentioned the World Economic Forum, and they tell me they're not sinister, but boy, they see everything as an opportunity. Uh, all the biblical bad things like war, pestilence, famine. They're like, yep, yep, yep. That's an opportunity for us to do. Well, they, they tell me the Great Reset is a uh, conspiracy theory, but why do I have government documents on it sitting on my desk <laughs> that, I, yeah. that I'm reading through? Um, Michelle, um, thank you be for being so generous with your time. Um, how do people support the very important work that you folks are doing at Friends of Science? Because, and I say it every time you're on, you guys have a shoestring budget. And you do incredible work and you are up against the deep pockets of the environmentalist movement, which, as we know, is funded by the Russians. 
<laughs> uh, well, people can support us by uh, becoming a member. Um, you can become a member for one year for $40, three years for $80. There's a button on our new website. And uh, also you can share our stuff. You can donate. You don't have to become a member, but if you do, you, be, you get all of our newsletters and materials. And um, uh, you know, share our material, talk with your family and friends about it, uh, talk with your politicians about it. We've got lots of very good reports that help people understand the, the crucial issues of the day on climate and energy policies. And really, you know, we're not registered lobbyists, so we're not able to go to Ottawa. We don't have the money to do it anyway. But, you know, if you look at the lobby, lobbyist registry there, you'll find the NGOs have dozens of lobbyists. They're in and out of government departments every single day of the week. So, you know, we rely on the public to be our foot soldiers, if you like, to put it in more terms. So, you know, share our stuff and um, help in any way that you can. We yeah. really appreciate it. And thank you to Rebel News for, you know, giving us a bit of a platform to tell our story because other people are reluctant to do so. You know, it's uh, I, I find Friends of Science to be an incredible resource, even for me. I read government documents all day long through the jargon, but sometimes even I'm like, you know what? Let me just go see what Friends of Science is saying about this. They pulled the numbers out of this that I just couldn't find. Um, and it, like I said before, it's an incredible resource for normals to understand how these bad, expensive government green policies are going to hit you right in your family's bank account. So I, I appreciate immensely the work that you guys do. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I'm the spokesperson, but we have a team of uh, professional engineers, professional geoscientists and others. And we work closely with the Clintel network out of the Netherlands who are now about a thousand scientists and scholars who say there's no climate emergency and we do have time. So share that message. I will. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, we'll have you back on again very, very soon. Thank you everybody at home for watching this um, episode of the Sheila and Michelle Mutual Appreciation Society. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sheila. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Bye. Our friends at Friends of Science do such good work on such a small budget, and as it would turn out, they might even be up against the deep pockets of Russian oligarchs. Brave, but increasingly efficient, digesting complex ideas for the working man. The radical left, as always, well, you just have to follow the money to find the real agenda that they have. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here in the same time, in the same place next week. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. <laughs>